Hello, 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 everybody. And welcome back to the Dynasty Wonderland podcast with me, the Mad Chatter, Ryan MK. And of course, as by my side, the March Heron, the salary captain, the wonderful Aaron Stewart, ladies and gentlemen. What's up, buddy? Oh, not much, man. You know, Monday nights are the highlight of my week. We get to talk mm-hmm. shop. And today's a special episode. It is a special episode. We have a special guest, the director of analytics at Roadrunner the World and Player Profiler. He is the code breaker, the luxurious Josh Larkey. Welcome to the Dynasty Wonderland, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great. I, man, what an intro. Like the the setup, the delivery, luxurious. I don't think I've ever been called that before, but I, I like how that sounds. Good. It sounded good in my brain as well. It sounded yeah, good that, in my brain as it. well. <laughs> I'm ready to talk some shop. Let's, Let's do, it. do it. Now, before we really get into stuff, if you want to give us a quick, uh, a quick, a quick, a blah, 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 already fucking up the language. If you want to give us a quick explanation, I was looking at um, your R coding stuff and you've got this site. G- give the listeners and Aaron and myself a, a brief explanation of the course and what all you're doing uh, with the site. So I know for many, myself included, coding is super intimidating. I actually put it off for several years where I had mentor after mentor saying, you know, if you want to break into sports analytics, you need to learn real coding. And I was always terrified. I just wanted to hang out with my, my Excel spreadsheets. And I was terrified of R and Python and Java and all the other ones. And eventually I caved and started to learn to code. And one thing that I realized is the data sets that analytics is taught with are super boring. It's credit card fraud, housing price data. You're, you're not really predicting anything interesting. Hmm. And the numbers don't come to life. It's hard to have a big attention span for all of that. And then the other thing is that Anyone that's taken a math class knows this. The teacher is in a lecture. They're writing something on the whiteboard and it makes total sense. And then you go home to do your homework and it looks absolutely nothing like what you learned in class. And it's way harder. And you think, you know, I really don't believe any of this was taught. So the goal with my course is twofold, which is to have interesting data sets. It's all taught with football. And then the other one is I like to give everybody the answers to the test. If you're learning to code, I don't want you spending hours and hours having to Google, where does the parenthesis go? What am I missing here? I teach you all the hard concepts. And then in the worksheets and the workbooks, there is nothing that you haven't seen in the lesson. And if for some reason you get stuck, I have every single answer fully coded out for you as well. So what I really wanted was an efficient process where I truly believe you can become a proficient R coder in six to 12 weeks with the course just putting in five to 10 hours a week on your own. And it's because I just shoot it to you straight. It's fun data. And I think it's kind of, I designed it as the course I wish I would have taken instead of having to go to grad school. So that that's me describing and selling the course to, to all of the, everyone out there in the ether. <laughs> Dude, I love it. Honestly, I was looking at it and I was like, I, I, I hadn't realized, um, like how deep you went with some of this stuff and that you had a site and a course. I like, I had not realized that. And I was like, this is freaking awesome. And uh, I've always been solid at math. So I always love, you know, branching out from there. And the, the coding stuff 
seems interesting as hell. It, it does seem difficult as shit, but it sounds like you've kind of got a way to kind of, you know, make it a little bit simpler. Yeah, that's kind of what I went for was I wanted anyone, even without a, a rigorous math background or coding background, to be able to take the course and enjoy it and be able to progress through it. So that's really what I was aiming for. And I was able to put a ton of time into it. So thank you, San Diego Padres, for furloughing me due to COVID. It turns out that attendance projection models, customer lifetime journeys, and customer values, that none of that on the business end matters when there's a pandemic and you're not allowed to sit in seats. So right. thank you to them for, for furloughing and then laying me off because I had time to work on this course and then ultimately step up my fantasy football involvement. So it was all for the best. <laughs> right. Very awesome story. Very cool site. And uh, the course looks great. Um, Aaron, did you have anything? Sorry. I, I know that I got to, to take like the first class and then, you know, last year was my introduction in, in contributing to fantasy football. And I, I got a little overambitious, kind of uh, did a little too much and I got away from it. So I am really trying to get my schedule together so I can start back again. <laughs> I, I think I'll probably even have to purchase it again because I go through computers like crazy. Like usually I have temporary computers. So I'm like, oh, that may be a bit of a problem. But honestly, I'm no, all no, I'll like, send you the files. No, no, no. Oh. Perfect. Perfect. You, so if I'm, you've purchased, I'll, I'll send them to you. I don't, it obviously I like making some money, but the goal of it is really to make it super accessible. It's why it's $75. I could charge more probably, but it's, I really wanted to keep it affordable because <clears throat> I don't want a price tag to be the reason that someone can't learn to code. So I tried awesome. to keep it at what I thought was a very reasonable price, which Josh is changing the business here. You know, right. The, the Padres loss is the fantasy football community's gain here. Because Josh know. has been Doing on a meteoric stuff. rise. Yeah. I love it. Okay. Now, we're going to go ahead and just jump right in to random fantasy thoughts before we get into our wonderful uh, a wheel of topics, Gabe. Is, is it? Uh, so, before we get into that, We'll go ahead and let our guest, Larky, Mr. Larky, anything random fantasy football thought that you got going on in that brain of yours that you would like to present to the mad fantasy party. So this actually got prompted from some, I don't even know who this is, but someone entered my DMs with what I thought was a super good question that I think we can discuss a little bit. And they'd listened to my recent code breaker about stacking. And I had a piece in there where I discussed what I defined as a reach and that I thought of it as kind of like 90% of ADP. So if a player goes ADP 100, if you take them 90 or lower, that's a reach. And they mm -hmm. said, okay, but doesn't ADP change over time and over the summer? And I thought it was really interesting, actually, the concept of trying to, trying to understand or imagine and kind of think forward as to which players are going to be rising and lowering in ADP as we move closer to the season. And I thought it was super interesting to kind of think about which players have been rising, who's been falling, how we can predict it. Are there certain players where uh, a coach could say something and next thing you know, their ADP goes up two or three rounds or falls two or three rounds. So have you guys ever thought about that before since it was really circulating on my mind today? And I was like, wow, that is, a, that's a great question. Yeah. Cause I guess in particular there was, there was a news blurb that I think benefited me in Scott Fishbowl because 
it comes out Tariq Cohen. Oh, he may not be quite like ready because, of course, right now here in July, like he's not the season's still two months away. Like he's still recovering, of course. So people tend to exaggerate a little bit, or or even something that may be factually correct. Then the fantasy community goes, "Oh my God, he's not going to be ready." And I got Tariq Cohen in round seventeen, like RB fifty five. It's like, guys, like that's. What are you doing? You're missing value on this because it's a knee-jerk reaction. You're going, oh, no, he may not be ready for week one, which it's, how's this guy going to know unless he's the doctor? Also, I think another thing that I've heard a few people talking about is if you grab a guy in like round 15, 18, 20 in the fishbowl, I mean, you're not starting that guy week one. Right. No one's grabbing that guy, and it's like, well, that's my week one starter. Because when I posted my kicker thread, I immediately got some pushback today from people where they're like, yeah, well, what about the first few weeks of the season? And you're not going to start one of these random rookies week one, are you? And I was like, I agree. Like, I'm not going to start Josh Palmer week one, but I'm not going to start this kicker week one either. So I don't think that's really, that's not how you should be framing this. It was like, well, of course I'm not going to start these guys. These are guys at the end of my bench. These are like the total dart throws where if one of your final seven picks is startable, you you've already won. Right. <laughs> exactly. Like super upside, like geez, like, you know, you use the early rounds to make sure you can fill the starting lineup week one. Cause I watched a lot of teams do, well, we'll get into a Scott fishbowl later, but mm. you know, teams that are just like, drafting third QB super early. And it's like, geez, you're passing on, a starting receiver, um, maybe tight end. And, you know, if you missed out on one of the top guys, you know, you need to be trying to find maybe a couple of those mid-round tight ends so that between those two, you have a starting tight end. So it's people are just, they, they over, like it's simple concepts when you really think about it, but people just overthink it. They, they go so much for value. And I think sometimes we, when you talk about ADP, Sometimes people draft too much. They focus so much on, oh, it's good value. And it doesn't fit their team strategy at all. Like uh, off, uh, off camera here, we were talking about how this team's drafting the fourth quarterback on their team because they're like, oh, I can't believe he fell so far. He's such a value. Like, okay, like when, when are you going to start your fourth quarterback? And if you're starting your fourth quarterback, you're screwed. So like, Stop, stop it with value. That's not how you use value. Yeah, no one, no one's winning any type of big redraft tournament with Tyrod Taylor in their super flex. Like if, if that's what it's come to, yeah, like you said, you're sorry, you're not going to get first place. Just accept it. Why did you take that guy? Because, you know, who's still available around those picks? I mean, I went, had some rookie receivers, Elijah Moore, Terrace Marshall, you know, even Sterling Shepard in my particular division went wide receiver 80. Like these, some of these guys get pushed way down because value, quarterback, super flex. So, you know, stop it, people. Use ADP the proper way. Don't do it. You know, this it's not dynasty. It's not dynasty. It's one year. You have to, your job is to make, is to draft the best team, the team with the best ceiling. Like I only have two quarterbacks. And you know what? That's probably all I'm going to have. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think <clears throat> when it comes to ADP for me, it's it, it's 
such in flux because th there are things that do move players up and down, e even if they probably shouldn't. So it's definitely something I pay attention to because I like I like to kind of get guys if I can get them cheap. And there's plenty of times during the Scott Fishbowl draft, I'm like, I think I can wait on this guy and get this guy here because it doesn't look like people are as interested in this guy as I am. And like, I can't tell you how late I got fucking Brian Edwards and maybe he pans out. Maybe he doesn't, but he is going to start to begin the season as he did last year. If he stays healthy, who the fuck knows? So, uh, you know, to get him that late, mm -hmm. Like how? It, nope, nobody, nobody. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, well, I guess I'll take him, and and so I did, and and it, it's just so that's the thing. But as soon as you hear one little thing, I think it was what what it was. It can skyrocket that dude. So <clears throat> it's it's actually one of the reasons I like drafting early in the summer because the, some people complain because they're like, we don't know enough about what's going on. And I'm like, perfect. Because I feel <laughs> like I do <laughs> because I have a crystal ball. You see it's back there and I will use it and it doesn't always work, but it's done well for me. And so I just, I, I like drafting early in the summer because I feel like I can, I, I can kind of figure some things out where maybe average players aren't. And, and then, Plus, that's before you get to training camp and you hear this little thing and that little thing and, and just uh, ADP. <sighs> yeah, I, I really like going early summer for yeah. rookies and uh, guys where we don't really know if they're going to get replaced in the draft. So I love doing like the late March drafting. And I was just pounding Those like Gaskin, too. Mike Davis, Chase Edmonds. It was all the random guys where I was like, you know what? Maybe he gets replaced. Maybe he, Maybe doesn't. he doesn't. Like We don't really know. Like, yeah, I whiffed on some Melvin Gordons because of Javante. And those teams might be dead. But you know what? I have some pretty crazy teams where I got like Mike Davis or Miles Gaskin at pick like 110 or something. Mm -hmm. Because everyone just assumed that they were, they were going to get replaced. Same with like Najee Harris was going in the fourth round pre-draft. And it's like. Don't you realize that he's going to go in the first round and he's huge and whichever team takes him is going to give him 25 touches a game as a right. rookie. And this is not really where his ADP should be. So I think that there's those types of situations like Rondale Moore, you could get it like pick 190 or something pre-draft because he's small. And it's like, well, he's probably going to go like pretty early day two. And then his ADP is going to rise quite a bit. So I think it's interesting to, to place those bets. So I, I try and think I'm trying to think now of like which guys I I do think come season will be significantly higher or lower. Mm -hmm. So I think it's kind of an interesting thought experiment. So could be a fun article topic at some point, like the guys we expect a month and a half, two months from now to be to just in a totally different stratosphere. Like I think ETN is one of those guys where if, if, which I expect that he's taking most of the first team reps in training camp, because it took a running back round one mm. that his ADP shoots up to the third round. If people go, Oh, this is a round one running back. He's explosive he catches <laughs> passes. And he has Trevor Lawrence, which is like the best of both worlds. The mobile quarterback freezes linebackers. And he's the, also like the unicorn mobile quarterback who loves targeting the running back as evidenced by how much he targeted ETN in college. So really interesting to try and think about like which guys one little thing breaks their way and they just totally smash where they're currently going.
I love it. All right, Aaron, do you got anything quick? A few minutes left and we take yeah. a break before we get into our game. What you got? Yeah, so just real quick here. Um, a lot of times, uh, fantasy football leagues, quick story, just a few years ago, I was almost burned out in fantasy football because I'd be in like six, seven leagues and it's the same scoring format every time. It's like, oh my gosh, like it's so boring because all the waivers are the same and everything. So I, I found that always looking at ways to adjust the scoring format. And in particular, like Scott Fishbowl kind of does this too. Uh, the kickers like in a big 14-team home league that's called BFLE. You know, I, I say it's best friends last for eternity. The other guys say it's best fucking league ever, you know, which whichever works <laughs> for you. So it's we, we've adjusted the scoring for kickers and uh, team defenses as well. And like kickers, we started doing a fractional system for field goals and the extra points because the extra points kind of when they changed that and the extra point was now like, what is it, a 27 yard field goal? It's like, how can a field goal that's 19 yards be worth more points than the extra point? That's a longer distance kick. So we, we changed our system to where it just goes. It's based off how far away the kick is. Um, it's we, we try things out and if it we give it a year or two doesn't work then we go back but you know we we have to kind of normalize that too and like home leagues like stop doing the same old same old try and tinker things a little bit we managed to get the same 14 people back in the league and when you have that type of continuity you can you know kind of go a little little bold you know we we started we're gonna we're gonna be a keeper league like we're gonna choose like one keeper and it may become more you know we're gonna try it this year if, and if not, then we go back to just regular redraft. But, you know, with those home leagues, spice it up a little bit. The team defense one, this is a fun one. So it's the major points on this is your defense starts with 15 points. And you lose points not just from points allowed, but also yardage. Because sometimes a defense can do a good job. But if you got Drew Locke throwing interceptions in short fields – and the poor defense has to defend like on the 10 yard line, you know, it's the defense gets penalized because of the offense. So there's less of a deduction from points scored, but also like if you're going out there and allowing 500 yards of offense and, you know, it's the, the other team just can't seem to score touchdowns. You're still going to be deducted points as well. You still weren't a good defense if you're giving up so many yards. So it's a nice little, twist there i think some people in the home leagues they didn't like it when defenses i think at the rams a few years ago my my opponent the rams scored like 40 no the falcons i think play the rams and score like 40 points that's like oh god i can't get beat by a defense like that so this, this <laughs> format you're not gonna have the extremes like you're not gonna have like 20 plus points but you're also not gonna have negative points from defenses because we've always everyone's experienced that at some point they start a defense and it was better to just not start a defense at all. You know, if you use the Cowboys defense, <laughs> I don't know why you would do that, but you're probably best uh, just leaving it on the bench. So it, it was very like if a defense put up negative points, they were super, super bad. So some people go, it devalues defenses too much, but you know, you maybe try to find a, a happy medium in there. I like that. That's interesting. Uh, it harkens me back to I've, I've played a few leagues on the most advanced platform out there, CBS Sports. And I don't think they do very many things well. But 
their defense does factor in yardage, which I always thought was a really good way to do it. There's a lot wrong with their platform. They don't use fractional scoring for a lot of stuff, but the way they do defense, I always thought was interesting. And it's a very similar way where it's a combination of yards allowed and points, because like you said, Drew Locke throws an interception and they return it to the 12 yard line. They're at least going to get a field goal, probably a touchdown, but I mean, if they hold them to a field goal, are you? Do you really want to penalize the defense for giving them no yardage? So I, I think it's interesting. So I, I'm a full supporter of having the yardage factored in, just because I think it's just like when half PPR and PPR came into play, where people started to realize, you know what, receptions aren't random, mm. and that like touchdowns are random. So if anything, let's find a scoring system that deprioritizes touchdowns if they're so random. And I mean, half PPR, full PPR players score more touchdowns are worth less relatively. So then you're actually incentivizing people to understand the game and realize that what we want to bank on is usage, not crossing your fingers that Mm. your running back has a touchdown and just breaks fantasy because no one can catch up to a 50 yard, one touchdown performance in standard. (laughs) <laughs> right. And then the other extreme, and I know we've, we've got to enter a break here in about a minute, but the, the other extreme with PPR was like the, the Edelman special, you know, nine catches, 53 yards. It's like, oh my gosh, why is that like almost 15 points? We, we actually do a tiered PPR. So it, it, you know, it was, you'd get like a quarter of a point for like one to four yard catches. So you, you get points for catching, but it's what the guy did with the ball afterwards. So that was kind of the next level stuff too, along with the, the first downs, because first downs are more predictive, I think, than, than touchdowns. Touchdowns, sometimes you just happen to be Robert Tanyan just in the end zone with Aaron Rodgers. Ebron like two or three years ago. Yeah, there's always it, that guy. Exactly. First downs, I think it's more in indicative of a player and how good they are if they're moving the chains. All right. Very well said with that, let's get into a break and we'll come back for the topic wheels, the wheel of topics. Yeah. Again, <laughs> there we go. We'll be back. Okay, we are back. We are back. We are back once again with Mr. Larkin. We now get into the Wheel of Topics game. And I'll get, go ahead and give it a spin of Rudy. We're going to let the guest go first once again. So here we go. Let's see what we got. I guess I could have listed the topics. Off-season narrative. So we'll get into a topic. They each have a few minutes. I'll try and keep a timer. And uh, I, might, I might just award some meaningless points at the, at the end of each round. We'll see how it goes. So let's go ahead and get into it. Off-season narratives. Mr. Larky, kick us off. I would love to talk about the off-season narrative of Jamal Williams and how he's apparently going to ruin DeAndre Swift in fantasy this year. What, what's going on there? Do you want me to kick off why I think this is totally falsifiable or 
do I kick this to Aaron and then I go back? What's the, what's no, the order? By all means, go ahead and start with your opinion on the situation. So I know that the, the whole hullabaloo was Anthony Lynn said Jamal Williams was the A-back. When later in the interview, the A-back essentially sounds a lot like the between the 20s grinder who does a lot of third and one runs up the middle. He didn't really say anything about how the A-back gets all the pass catching work or all the goal line work. And Jamal Williams, career backup, day three pick. He never seemed to hinder Aaron Jones from being a top five running back in back-to-back seasons these past two years. I don't quite know why it's going to affect Swift. I understand it's not a great offense, but you know what? DeAndre Swift is not getting drafted as if he's a top five running back like Aaron Jones, even though I would say they're very similar talents. And I expect DeAndre Swift to out-target Aaron Jones this year. So I don't quite understand it. You really just simply put, you cannot find a running back that's getting 60 or more catches in a season who isn't returning outrageous value in half PPR and PPR formats. So if Swift is going mid to late round three, early round four at this point, I just can't stop drafting the guy. I don't know what I'm missing. I, I mean, if you look at McKissick and Hines from last year, who got no goal line carries and under 100 rushes on the season. Those were both RB2s by the end of the year. I mean, these guys put up points. So just imagine that, but with 100 more carries and goal line work and quite possibly better efficiency because DeAndre Swift's just flat out way better at football than those guys. So let me keep grabbing DeAndre Swift in that late RB, like low end RB2 range when he has the low-end RB1 upside, which is incredibly easily attainable, assuming that his target share doesn't just disappear poof, which I don't see happening with that receiving core. Go ahead, Aaron. And just to add on on that one, too, it's like with Swift, man, look at the offensive line. There's actually talent there on the offensive line. So people keep going, oh, Detroit's going to be so bad. Usually the teams that we think are going to be the worst team in the NFL, they always surprise you. And there's things to like on on offense. It's not going to be a Kansas City type offense, but you can see that they're constructing an identity, at least. Hey, the receivers are just going to be there to to run straight lines, you know, keep the keep the safeties off. And it's going to run through Swift and Hawkinson. And yeah, Jamal Williams, he's going to get work. Of course, because there's very few running backs that are going to get all the touches. But most importantly for Swift, he, the touches he gets, they matter. And last season with Adrian Peterson, still getting the, the corpse of Adrian Peterson, getting all the, the carries. We saw at the start of the season, there was a game week three that he had that DeAndre Swift had zero carries. And yet he was still able to make plays in the passing game. Like he only, well, he only ran four routes. It was a weird usage, but they still target him twice in that game, despite like only running four plays. And he, he didn't top five carries first four weeks. And yet he still had a RB 17 and two RB 28 weeks. And not bad for a guy that's not getting any work. You're literally like that. That is his absolute floor. And of course he's not going to see just five carries. Otherwise Anthony Lynn, needs to immediately go along with Dan Campbell. But the narrative I like is just quarterbacks. Like what's going to happen with some quarterbacks Uh, briefly, just Aaron Rodgers, Deshaun Watson, could they get traded? Like it's a weird time. Like we don't usually have 
starting QBs with this type of uncertainty, the Deshaun Watson in particular, things have gotten really, really quiet. And it's, it's a little unnerving because they've been covering the heck out of that. And it's not like the media would stop covering it. It's, I, I have a feeling like things are getting settled. Like there's literally, I haven't heard anything. So those teams that went bold in best ball and went to Sean Watson, they, <laughs> they may get bailed out. You're in Scott Fishbowl though, and you're drafting in the top 10 rounds or so. Like that's stupid. You know, it's just pure luck if you draft a Watson and, and he gets out. But the other quarterback thing too that doesn't get talked about is we've got three quarterbacks that are due for extensions, and two of them could reset the market, which it's not saying much. Quarterback market gets reset every year. But Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, could one of those two guys, could they be the first $50 million? per year contract amongst quarterbacks and to put that in perspective Patrick Mahomes of course right now he's making 45 million per year and Dak Prescott got the 40 million per year with a ton of cash a ton of upfront money Lamar Jackson Josh Allen you could you can make the case you could definitely say they're they're better than Prescott um not that Prescott's trash by any means but those two guys what they've done past few seasons they've had some remarkable seasons are they Patrick Mahomes level? No, but the other thing is that NFL salary cap is expected to shoot right back up. You know, COVID was weird. Nobody could plan for it. That's why the salary cap decreased a lot, but it's expected to go back up to 208 million in 2022. And each of the next four seasons goes up 10 million. So it's not that they're worth 50 million and Patrick Mahomes is only worth 45 million. Quarterback market gets reset each year. So which one of those two guys? Are going to be the 50 million guy and what's baker gonna get like because he's he's no scrub he he's still he's probably a better nfl quarterback than a fantasy quarterback but he wins he makes a lot like you pull up you pull him up on player profiler and the the advanced stats don't lie like he makes a lot of great plays the the money throws 39 i believe number two and low passes that were deemed dangerous like he's gonna get paid as well so I'm interested to see what happens with all five of those quarterbacks. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the one that I'm probably most interested in is to see what happens with Lamar, just because the way that he plays, we haven't really seen a quarterback ever play like that for an extended period of time. I mean, Michael Vick, just so many injuries throughout his career. Uh, Kyler Murray, we really haven't seen enough yet, but he doesn't even run as much as Lamar. And he already started, he had a couple injuries last year where there were certain weeks where he just wasn't able to run at all. So I think Lamar will be interesting in terms of if they try and set his contract up where they're mitigating some of that injury risk, I'll be very curious to see what that structure looks like. Because if I knew I was getting healthy Lamar, yeah, the guy's worth probably 50 million a year with what he brings to an offense. I mean, he had god-awful skill position players the last two seasons and was still putting up numbers. So you know that you can run an offense through him without basically anything else. But two years from now, do I think that he's going to be a starting quarterback in the league? I don't know. The injury concerns in my mind and just his play style and what if he loses a step in the next couple of years, I think there's just a lot of uncertainty with a profile like that, where we just really haven't seen anyone that mobile have a long career. And that Russ is really the one comparison people make, 
except Wilson is more of a tactical scrambler than Lamar. He's running, I don't know, five times a game compared to eight to 15, depending on the game. So there's really, it's hard to compare anybody to Lamar right now. I mean, Trey Lance might be that in a few years, but Jalen Hurts could be that in a few years, but we, we really have yet to see someone as mobile as Lamar get that extension. And <clears throat> I don't know if it's just me, but it, I, I feel a little more confident in Lamar. I feel like I don't really see Lamar take the big hits as, as a lot of other mobile quarterbacks of his style. I, but maybe it's something I'm missing. But when you talk about his contract, I do think that is definitely going to be interesting because he doesn't have an agent. He's likely going to be using a lawyer. Who knows what the, the Ravens will try and put in the contract because an average lawyer isn't going to know what to look for, I don't think, in those kinds of contracts. So it'll be interesting to see how all that plays out. And Aaron and I have talked about it. I do believe that Baker, um, damn it, who's the other one? Allen, those guys are waiting to see what happens with Lamar before they strike. That's what I think. <clears throat> Um, because he is the one that's in a little bit more of a precarious position. So that's kind of my thoughts on it. Um, anybody have anything else on the topic before the rest before? We, oh, I just did want to say this. This I, I got DeAndre Swift in the fourth round of the Scott Fishbowl draft. I just wanted to say that. I just wanted to say that. Bravo. Thank you, sir. I, Thank you, sir. I think one thing that I'll say about Baker, Lamar, and Josh Allen, you're looking at three really competent front offices where – all three of them have weaknesses. And if you look at where they're at right now and the offenses they're in, they're in systems that are designed to maximize their talent. They have skill position players that help them maximize their talent. Mm -hmm. And I think that it, those three teams have just done really well where you could see those three guys on another team crashing and burning. So I yeah. think that's interesting that all three of them have been so successful the past few seasons. And I think that they were all three kind of landing spot dependent when you think about it. Not that any of us could have really predicted how the teams would build around them, but just now that we've seen the type of offenses that they're in and what their limitations are, these are three teams that seem to know how to maximize their talent. It's so important for quarterbacks, just real quick too, because the other two first round quarterbacks in that draft class, Josh Rosen and Sam Darnold, <laughs> Rosen is hanging on by a thread to his NFL career and Darnold, he's one more bad season away from being in that spot. Like, honestly, I'm shocked at how much of a how, – how many opportunities that they're going to give this guy. So it's – you're right. Like, the front office, like, for for any position, like, it's, it's quarterback that's more dependent on just the stability and a good coaching staff, a good front office. So – Excited. It's it's an interesting time. I don't know if we've ever had three guys all coming off rookie contracts that are all going to get a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't think of a year. Going to be interesting. All right, we'll move along before we do. The way I'm going to do the points is I'm going to have five points total to give, and I'll disperse them between the two of you each round. Uh, Mr. Larky, hell of a way to start us off. You get all five points this round. Don't worry, Aaron. It's okay. They really don't mean anything. I'm just, so don't worry. Okay, now let's get back to this. Let's spin again. I think I scored zero points anything, last time. It's five-zero, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> 
and we're not doing that again. So we're spinning again. Best ball strategy, Aaron. We'll go ahead and let you go first this time. Get us going on some best ball strategy discussion. So in following Josh Larkey here and, and our boy, Chris, the early down grinder, like in learning that you have to maximize each roster spot and you also have to know where to draft and where to avoid positions. So I, I have found that as I've gotten better, when I first started doing best ball drafts, I went RB heavy big time. Like I'm talking going four RBs to start the draft and looking back on that, I'm like, no, there's no way like that. That doesn't maximize your, your starting lineup at all because you can only start with three of those running backs. So I've my ideal build when I can pull it off is two quarterbacks, four running backs, 10 receivers and two tight ends. Like I love loading up on receivers because receivers, you can get them everywhere. I mean, there's, there's guys at the end of the draft, the middle of the draft, you, you want to grab, you want to grab some stud guys. And usually what I'm trying to do, we like the same stacks, uh, Josh, we, I'm either trying to get Hopkins or Lockett Metcalf. I'm trying to get those guys and stack them with Kyler Murray and Russell Wilson because it. whenever I'm in drafts that doesn't have Roto Underworld people, I can always get Kyler Murray and Russell Wilson. I can get Kyler in the fifth round, Russell Wilson in the sixth round. I, I'm almost guaranteed to get half my stack right off the bat. So usually the first four rounds, it's gonna. I'm going two RBs, two receivers. Then the fifth, fifth through seventh rounds is where I'm grabbing a quarterback. I love the running backs that are there. I mean, that's Travis Etienne, Miles Gaskin, Trey Sermon, Chase Edmonds. They're just sitting there in the fifth, sixth, seventh round. So if if those guys are my third RB, I'm like I'm I'm pumped. Especially because like Edmonds, you can uh, you can stack them with Kyler Murray. Uh, the eighth round, I I love the eighth and ninth round for receivers. This is the Mike Williams, Curtis Samuel, Antonio Brown. Brandon Cooks, Will Fuller. So, yeah, usually kind of going in, I'm like, I want to get this position within ADP, but I I know who to expect in those rounds. And when it gets to the final third of of the draft, it's basically all receivers. It's the Josh Palmers, the Dwayne Eskridge's, targeting guys on good offenses that are the third receiver in which all, all it has all they need is one injury and boom, they're getting some good production there. I may get like a tight end, depending, like if I manage to get Darren Waller, freaking love Darren Waller this year, broke my heart when I couldn't get him in the first round, Scott Fishbowl. But <laughs> if I'm getting a Darren Waller, like um, I'm not drafting a tight end till 16, 17, 18th round. Like what's the point? Like I, I've, I'm going all in with Darren Waller, so I need to maximize the rest of my team. But basically, I the more drafts I do, the less running backs I got. I think I started with six running backs when I would do some of my early drafts, and then it was like, okay, five's a good number. I was like, well, maybe not. I'm going to go even bolder and go for it because, you know what, I'm swinging for the fences. If I finish last place, okay, it you know, it, the luck wasn't on my side. If I finish second place. Yeah, I may win some money, but I'm not like bragging about it. I'm either going for first or I'm going for broke. But that the build, the two, four, ten, two, that's my favorite build so far. Those are the teams I absolutely love. So I was big two, four, ten, two, uh, like a couple months ago. And then one thing that I started to realize was I still get a good amount of those. I got one of those earlier today, actually, in a draft, but 
I've started to get really into the the three cheap quarterback builds where you can heavily stack three cheaper quarterbacks where I kind of let the draft fall to me the first three, four, five rounds. And then I sort of evaluate who's on my team at that point. So if I have Terry McLaurin, I'm thinking, all right, let's start to look at Fitzpatrick. If I have Galladay, I'm like, all right, let's start to look at Daniel Jones. And I've started, or if I have Waller, I look at Derek Carr. And I've started to really enjoy the this new, it's kind of new for me, but it's the three quarter, three cheap quarterback build where I'll get some type of combination of like Trevor Lawrence, Tua Tonga Carson Wentz, uh, those types of guys, Daniel Jones, Derek Carr, Fitzpatrick, and that I've actually started to really enjoy those teams because I can get a lot more correlation there. And then I don't feel like I'm as obligated to need to reach on anybody early rounds because I'm knowing that if I don't end up landing like a, a Hopkins Murray or something, or if I take Hopkins and Murray gets sniped from me, or I take Diggs and someone takes Allen, it's okay. This is just a stud receiver on my team that kind of fell to me. And I can still now pivot. And you can even get like an Edward, Brian Edwards, Derek Carr at the end of your draft. You can get Sterling Shepard, Daniel Jones at the end of your draft. So I've started to try and be a little bit more flexible recently, and it's led to a lot more of the three quarterback builds. I still love the, the two dominant QB stacked up. My, my couple of favorite teams are when I actually do the Cardinals Seahawks double stacks. And the reason for that is not only am I getting crazy correlation, if I have like Murray Hopkins and Russ Lockett, where we know how dependent those quarterbacks are and pa- those pass catchers and vice versa, but it's intra-divisional correlation where we know that those teams are going to play each other twice during the season. So I'm trying to start to think about intra-divisional correlation where if I take uh, Herbert, I would love if I had take, it's nice to take Herbert when I have Tyreek Hill or Kelsey in the first round and that I'm getting kind of that intra-divisional correlation where if Herbert explodes during the season, there's a good chance that those Chargers Chiefs games are high scoring. So I think it's really interesting to think about uh, how to be, more and more flexible the more drafts I do, where I do love those two, four, 10 twos, but that sometimes I feel like the way the board falls to me, I go, you know what? I think I can wait on a stud quarterback. And I really like these receivers, or I really like these running backs. Let's just keep getting bell cows. So it's kind of interesting. I feel like now I'm kind of in between these hyper fragile running back builds with a ton of receivers. And then these builds where I actually have a good amount of receivers early and only one or two stud running backs. And then at the very end of the draft, I try and tack on like a Ty Johnson who goes final round of drafts, but still has like a one in three chance of being the starter week one. So I think there's a few arbitrage plays there where I'm starting to warm up to uh, how every single strategy has its place at times based on how the draft unfolds. I got to try that. I'm, I'm a little out of practice. I, <laughs> I, there's going to be a lot of articles coming out from me soon. So <laughs> I've, I've been a, I, I've been in a dark room with three monitors pumping out articles and I, I, I'm about a week out of practice on, on doing some, some best balls. So I need to, 
need to get back into it. I, I really like, um, well, what both of you guys said, but the, Larky, the divisional um, aspect of it is very fucking interesting. And I, I definitely would like to look more into that. And, and I also tend to go a lot of three QBs and I, I have a lot of Daniel Jones and Kenny Galladay. <clears throat> I've been grabbing some Mac Jones and then grabbing a Hunter Henry, like at the end of the draft. Um, I, I'm still, I still like to get a top QB, a top tight end. I'm a big believer in positional advantage. I just, whether it's dynasty redraft, I like to have one of the top guys. So I know I have one of the top guys at the scarcer positions. And, um, so it, that's kind of the way I go about it. I like to get those guys, my running backs early, and then I just pound wide receiver. That's usually how I go about it. Um, but I, yes, I have found myself with a, a, a quite a bit of the Daniel Jones, Kenny Galladay stack, and I'm really not upset about it. So we will move on. Next topic. Okay. Oh, wait, let, let, let me see. Let me see. I, I think I'm going to go ahead and give you some points there, Aaron. That was a, that was a decent one. You know, you did, uh, I should say, I'll give you point. Uh, we'll give you one. We'll give Larky four Cause he had the whole divisional thing. I mean, you, you know, as it, so it, it, it doesn't There's matter. Four, four teams in a division, you know, right. I, I see. <laughs> okay. And the off-season narratives are fucking again. But come on, <laughs> backfields in flux, my friends. Mr. Larky, go ahead and start us off on this one. Well, I sort of alluded to it with Ty Johnson, but I think the New York Jets backfield is just fascinating because I'm doing a lot of underdog drafting and Michael Carter's ADP, it's about ninety. Tevin Coleman's in the one seventies, and then Ty Johnson's in the two tens, and you grab him at the end of drafts. And I think it's really interesting because I personally have no idea who the starter is going to be. I don't, I don't actually know who does know who the starter is going to be, but I've seen a ton of what I consider really sharp people on Twitter hyping up Michael Carter. When, if you just look at him in a vacuum, it's a small day four running back who has never been a workhorse. And it's not like we think this is going to be some prolific offense either. So right. how is Michael Carter going ahead of Leonard Fournette, Ronald Jones? I mean, Fournette and Ronald Jones at least have a 50-50 chance of being the starter on a way better offense. Yet they go later than Michael Carter. So I think those kind of things are interesting. So I'm, I'm about ready to drop Michael Carter pretty precipitously in my rankings as I've come to that realization that, you know what? Yes, I think he's talented. It's kind of fun to think about the shifty pass catching back being relevant. But at the end of the day, like, what are we doing with these ambiguous backfields? Why not just take the cheap guys? So I actually, a couple times in my best ball drafts, I have quote unquote handcuffed. And if I'm really weak at running back and really just want to bank points, I'll grab Tevin Coleman and Ty Johnson towards the end of drafts thinking, you know what, if I get two thirds of the running back starts for the Jets, I'm in business with a 16th and 18th round pick on underdog and that, yes, I took two running backs at the same position, but what I truly believe is that they're going to kind of rotate who starts. And I don't believe it's going to be the kind of thing where one guy is just given the reins and it's okay. You are just the starter for the season. I think it's going to be kind of a hot hand game, the game thing. So if I can lock up 
give or take two thirds of the running back production at the very end of my draft. I think it's kind of an interesting concept where we really haven't seen two guys be so cheap before and going in round 16 and 18 when they have a realistic chance where this is the week one starting running back there. I dig it. Go ahead, Aaron. For me, an interesting one is the Denver backfield because I love Javante Williams. I do. But Melvin Gordon is there. And the thing is, right now, this backfield, it is a coin flip of where it could go. Because I I just pulled up Javante Williams underdog ADP, and it's 63, and it keeps going up. That's the crazy thing. I, I believe in my Scott Fishbowl division, he went in round five, I believe. And I was like, oof, like, that is – he is a high risk, high reward running back. I love Javante Williams, but here's some of the numbers with, with Melvin Gordon is even last year, he was top 30 juke rate, true yards per carry breakaway run rate yards created per touch. I mean, he's not what he used to be, but he still showed some of the stats there where it's like, okay, this, he's not a guy that's just going to go sit on the bench. And I mean, unless Javante Williams is Nick Chubb, right? where Nick Chubb could be productive with even with Kareem Hunt still getting some work. Like, my goodness. Like, Javante Williams, he's either going to be a league-winning running back this year or you're going to draft him and you go, what the hell was I thinking? Like, making him one of my two starting running backs. But also, the plot thickens on this because, of course, Denver got a new GM. They got George Patton. And, and Patton brought in a depth running back, Mike Boone, not a threat to take over any starting role. But, of course, the new GM is going to bring in one of his guys. He came from Minnesota. He brought in Mike Boone. And, of course, being the salary captain, I had to look into the contract there with Melvin Gordon. Melvin Gordon is in the last year of his contract, and they can actually save money cutting him this year. It's it's a lot of dead cap, but it's the last year of his contract if they don't believe that Melvin Gordon's in the plan and most staffs that come in, they want to get their guys. And Melvin Gordon did have some stats that, that didn't look so good too. I know there's not really a strong correlation of the expected points added, but like Melvin Gordon was, I want to say, if he wasn't last amongst running backs, he was like next to last. It was, it, it makes you wonder because I really like that stat that you introduced a player profiler because I feel like that stat allows us analysts to understand when teams decide to bring in players at a position. Cause you know, we go Melvin Gordon, he's been fantasy productive for so long. Why they draft a run, why they trade up and draft a running back early second round. Then you start looking, you're like, okay, I can make a case if that's what they're looking at. And that's the closest stat we have that quantifies like their, what they're doing on the field to winning games. And so, I saw that. I was like, okay, I could see, I could see why people love Javante Williams and they could cut him. They can save money. I, I thought Royce Freeman would be the cut, but you know what? They save more money cutting Gordon. If they believe in Javante Williams, that's, that's why I'm like Javante Williams is either the league winning running back this year in fantasy football, or if Gordon's still there, he's going to get half the work. Like you're not just going to sit Melvin Gordon. Like even, even last year when he was, he wasn't playing so well, he was still splitting work with Philip Lindsay. Ooh, that, that, that leaves a bad taste in my mouth mentioning Philip Lindsay, but 
oh, that's the backfield that it's it's either a 50-50 timeshare and those people drafting Javante Williams look stupid or those people are going to be pretty damn lucky. Yeah, I think with Javante, I kind of see him as pretty much at his ADP right now, a total stay away. If you're just in a casual Mm -hmm. 12-team best ball league right now, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. He's probably not going to be the day one starter and get all the work. Right. So in in that case, if you're playing in a league where it's seasonal points, I don't think Javante is great there. I think he's much better in a tournament where you say, you know what? He's probably going to be in some type of timeshare with Gordon or Boone or something like that. And then come mid season, the coaches will realize this guy's pulling away. He's going to get a lot more work. We saw it last year with Jonathan Taylor. We saw it with DeAndre Swift. We saw it with Dobbins. We saw it with Akers. Pretty much all these guys get more work at the end of the season than at the start of the season. So yes, in a tournament when you're playing for huge money in advancing in rounds in the week 15 or week 16 or whatever, sure, Javante Williams is a savvy play if you think he's going to be the full-on bell cow by then. But if you're trying to bank points each week and it's just whoever has the most total points at the end of the season, I don't think Javante is nearly as good of a play because like you said, there's a very good chance he's timeshared for at least a decent portion of the season. And you don't want to be grabbing a guy in the fifth or sixth round who's going to be getting you five to eight points the first half of the season. I really like what both of you guys said uh, pertaining to Denver because I love Javante Williams, particularly in Dynasty. But when it comes to these different uh, um, like best ball and even standard, even in the Scott Fishbowl, I, I had my eye on him, but he went super fucking high. And I'm just like, OK, I can't you know, I can't get him that high. He's getting to a point where it, it, he is, li- like you said, stay away, stay away zone. Yep. So I'm with you on that. And, and the jet stuff. <clears throat> I'm a big proponent as well of grabbing the cheapest guy in that kind of backfield. And that's why I'm going to throw in just real quickly, the San Francisco 49ers backfield, because you got Raheem Mostert there. Hey, you know, he's getting older, uh, was banged up last year. We'll see what happens with him. They drafted Trey Sermon in the third, but they drafted Elijah Mitchell in the fifth, very similar, but faster. So I've been taking a crap ton, particularly in rookie drafts, a crap ton of Elijah Mitchell because I'm taking that dart throw in final rounds. I grabbed him at the end of the Scott Fishbowl draft just because I want to take that dart throw because I love the offense and who knows really what's become of that. You figure Mostert probably starts, Sermon's going to get some work, but if Elijah Mitchell goes in there in camp and really shows out, he could get a piece of the action too. So, you know, and they got Jeff Wilson there, but he's hurt, I believe. And uh, so any, I feel like that one is definitely up in the air. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I took Sermon middle of the ninth round in my Scott Fish draft, and we still have six rounds left. And I've actually thought about grabbing one or two of like Mitchell and Gallman because (laughs) these later on, they never pan out. Anyone that's ever played redraft dynasty, anything like that, no matter how much you love your team, by week four, you have several new characters in your life. Oh, yeah. Either on your bench or even in your starting roster. So 
this early in the offseason, I feel like is the perfect time to load up on those ambiguous backfields. Mm-hmm. San Francisco is a really good one. So I took Sermon and one or two of these next six picks will probably be some combo of Mitchell and Gallman because they're super cheap and I have no idea what they're going to do. I mean, if you just look at the San Francisco backfield the past few years, nobody had any idea how it was going to play out. But all we know is that for some reason, this backfield by season's end seems to have a whole lot of fantasy points. So I don't think that's going to change. It looks like it's going to be a pretty good offensive line. We're going to have a mobile quarterback, which is going to help the efficiency of these running backs. So I'm, I'm pretty excited to take a few dart throws on these guys and then just cross my fingers and see if one guy can run away with it. Sort of like two years ago when Mostert had that ridiculous second half right. of 2019 or was it 2020? No, 2019. Cause last year was when he kind of fizzled. Yeah. 2019, the second half Mostert was just a total league winner out mm-hmm. of absolute nowhere. Indeed. I love it. Agree. 100% get on to the next topic. Okay. All right. All right. Last spin of the wheel before we get out of here. Oh, you goddamn off-season narratives again. <laughs> I can't believe off-season it. narratives. Oh. No, Scott Fishbowl chatter. There we Scott go. Fishbowl chatter, Mr. Larkey, get us going. Whether it be strategy, hi, we've already gotten into it a little bit. So why don't you just go ahead and whatever it is, how your, your draft is going, your strategy, all that good stuff, whatever you want to chat about pertaining to the good old Scott Fishbowl. Yeah, I'm going to talk about people just kind of whiffing on picks because I think that's kind of funny. I think it's kind of instructive as to how I think you should be playing this, especially in the later rounds. We touched on it a little bit where I'm like, oh, I'll probably grab just random SF running backs and cross my fingers one hits. What you should be doing at the end of your draft and where I feel like I've gotten the big, the bigger edge as the draft has gone on. Is that like, yeah, it's going to be fairly chalk the first, I don't know, five, six, seven, whatever many rounds. There's not going to be that many picks where you look at it and go bug-eyed and chuckle that, well, that guy flubbed his pick. That woman flubbed their pick. But I feel like these later rounds is really where it's starting to separate, where I'm grabbing guys that I can envision this is, this is when I would start them in my lineup. And it's like what we were talking about with like the fourth quarterbacks, like people grabbing Tyrod Taylor, Andy Dalton. When are you going to start that guy? Jacoby Myers in my draft went before Aguilar. And then I grabbed Aguilar and I thought, well, are you ever really going to start Myers? I can't see a world with their current personnel where that's the guy you're starting. But I can see a world where I'm starting Nelson Aguilar and he's on pace for 850 receiving yards and six touchdowns, and he's usable week to week. I can't really see that happening with Jacoby Myers when it was just him and Demir Bird last year, and then they bring in Aguilar, Henry, Janu. I took Paris Campbell at wide receiver 62, thinking, you know, there's not 61 other receivers that have more upside than him where – like Russell Gage went before him. And I was just thinking about these guys and I'm like, are you really going to start Russell Gage week to week when he's the clear number three there behind Ridley and Pitts, if not even behind Zacchaeus, like we don't really know. Whereas Paris Campbell could be the one. 
in Indianapolis. We don't really know, but that there is this upside there where sure, if things break right, Paris Campbell is the starting receiver on what we think is going to be a pretty good offense. I don't see any world where some of the, these other random guys that I was talking about are ever going to be startable. Like when is Jacoby Myers ever going to have that crazy upside? Uh, I don't know if you guys noticed that, but I really felt like my edge started to separate as the draft went on and on where I'm thinking, you know, are you really going to start that? Like, so Philip Lindsay went before Aguilar. And I was like, when are you starting the RB2 to RB4 somewhere in that range on the Houston Texans who doesn't catch passes and won't get goal line work? When are you starting that guy? So I don't know. Did you guys notice that play out in your draft? Since I noticed a huge shift around like the 11th, 12th round when it started to seem like people didn't quite understand what kind of players they should be targeting. Yeah, because I had because it just refreshed on on me. This is like middle of the eleventh round, right? It went Sam Darnold, uh, my boy Janu, but Jameis Winston, Cam Newton, and then the first kicker of the draft. And it's like, what are any of those? What are any of those things doing for you? Because you come back around and you like some of the picks that in the very next round, like Rashad Bateman goes on the 12th round. Hey, like that, mm-hmm. that could be the, the best receiver in Baltimore on an, on a passing offense. And yes, the past, the past couple of seasons hasn't passed much, but could that have been caused by the fact that they didn't, you, they didn't have any receivers that Willie Sneed was out there running most of the routes. Yeah. So it's like, what, what are people doing? It, the, I, this one was an accidental pick in the 10th round. Someone went Jared Goff and that was their fourth quarterback, but still like 10th round, you drafted a fourth quarterback. You're screwed. Like, because just if you're starting 11 players, you can only start two quarterbacks. That means your ninth and 10th round. And in my opinion, is kind of a waste to pick. I mean, I'm really trying that in the first 11 rounds, I'm drafting 11 guys that I could, that I could start. At least that was just my philosophy going going into that yes a third quarterback if it makes sense like in there sure but i like the fourth quarterback it's like geez like now you're hoping that the that the guy in the 13th round is an every week or not every week but starts more weeks for you than than you'd expect and and man that's that's not what i'm expecting my 13th round pick i'm hoping that I can get a handful of games, but like, I'm not overly relying on my 13th round pick. Like this team is it's mm-hmm. just God awful. That's interesting. Yeah. Another thing is I think people misunderstanding the idea of handcuffing and that you should really do it in a backfield where you're not sure who the starter is. Uh, I've seen people where they grab Zeke in the, the second round and then they grab Pollard and they say, you know, what if, Pollard becomes the league winner. I'm like, well, in a tournament with 2000 people, when there's 100 something other people that are taking either like that are going to be taking like just Pollard or just Zeke, let's say that Zeke sucks and it becomes Pollard. Your team's dead in the water because your second round pick is putting up zeros. And the person who didn't take Zeke round two, but took Pollard in the 12th, their team is kicking ass because they might've taken Jonathan Taylor in the second. So now they have Pollard and Taylor. You just have Pollard. And it's like, do people not understand that you want to get first place out of 2000 teams? 
Mm. There's just certain things where it's like, do you, are you going to start this guy any week? And then do you actually want to be first out of 2000 or are you just afraid of finishing last? Which like, who really cares if you finish last because your round one or round two pick has a season ending ACL tear, no one's going to laugh at you. Like, ha ha, you took Zeke round two and then he tore his Achilles or something. It's like, okay. Like there's no, you, you're, it's not embarrassing that your team didn't do well if that happens. happens. So you can't be drafting worried about these injuries. You just have to assume that all of your early picks are hitting and that, yes, if I take Sermon in the ninth and then grab another San Francisco running back at the end of my draft, I mean, that's fine. It, like if your ninth round pick is only a semi hit and gets a few startable weeks, you can still win a tournament. But if your second round pick doesn't hit or first round pick doesn't hit, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. So the, the Zeke Pollard and then the, the other one I see a lot of is like Cook Madison. And those are just complete zero, zero upside moves in the tournament where w- what do you expect to happen if you're starting the backup? Exactly. And, and having so many starting spots too. I mean, you're starting half of your roster. So yeah, like it's, it really, it does come down to numbers. And, and when you talk about these handcuff running backs, when, what, what would that be? Nine percent. Hold on. Hold on. When 9% of your bench is, is a zero, like that can add up when it's two, three. Yeah. Like I, I'm drafting each of these guys that even the bench guys, are doing something that, and sometimes that has been making a difficult decision because there was, let's see, where would it have been? I'm, I'm currently looking at my board here. Where did, where did Pollard go? I, I can't find it, but like, you know, there was in the rankings, of course, we're going to be transparent here. We're using your rankings to kind of base off of, and I love the tiered rankings because it's not so much of, oh, it's the top guy. You know, it gives you flexibility because there, you know, Pollard, James Conner, Gus Edwards, those guys were around the same spot there. And it, it allowed me to go, okay, I was one that went Zeke in the second round. So I, I knew, I was like, I'm going to draft Pollard. Like, I mean, Sure, Pollard can be a league winner, but for this particular team, doesn't make sense for me. I'm drafting Zeke that early. I, if he if he goes down with an injury, I knew, I know I'm fucked. I'm I'm either going to be first place or or last, you know. But who cares? Like if you're second place in your division, it doesn't matter. <laughs> no, nobody cares about your standings in this unless you win the whole thing. Then yeah, you get to brag about it. So you know, it was some of the things I liked was getting into like round 14, like the final third of, of this draft. It was, I'm drafting guys that I go, I'm hoping more, more so than the second half of the season, they do something. I grabbed an Elijah Moore in the 15th round. Hey, you know, the jets, that receiving core, Corey Davis is supposedly the number one. How strong of a, of a hold does he have on that position there? Like Elijah Moore, there is a possibility that he ends up being the best receiver for the Jets. You know, if he doesn't do anything in the first half, oh well. I drafted him as my receiver six, so he's not expected to to start early on. Um, grabbing a Terrace Marshall in the 16th round. Hey, I know DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson are there, but Curtis Samuel and 97 targets are gone. Like Marshall in the 16th round has potential for 100 targets. Will he get that? Yeah, who knows? But I. 
think it's it's at least of of guys going around that range there because Marshall is the 69th receiver off the board. I guarantee he has the best odds of getting 100 targets, even if he doesn't get 100 targets. So it's just kind of simple, simple things like that. People just really overcomplicate things. They, I don't know. Like it's some of these picks I go, what are, like, what are you doing? Like, um, I, I have a person that went back to back kickers. And it's like, what's, what's the goal here? Like a kicker. Okay. But back to back, like, like, you're at least waiting late on these. I got to be credit 16th, 17th round. I'm wanting league winners. I'm that's why a Dwayne Eskridge in the 19th round, you know, maybe he's he can run a straight line really well, and that's all Russell Wilson needs. It's like, give, give me a give me a shot on a player like that. I actually may be going Dan right as I say it that I was going to go Dan Arnold. My thing refreshed, and the team took Dan Arnold. That oh, was. No. Uh-oh. some some live action there so uh, i really liked dan arnold because hey he he doesn't get a ton of targets but it was like 12 and a half yards per target like and going to a team that clearly wanted to upgrade tight end so you know i'm just hey high upside now i i don't know what i'll do at tight end but yeah across that bridge when it comes back to me i was i gambled a little too much on that one well i'm on the clock I think I'm going to take Christian Kirk at the 1704. If he actually is the slot monster that he was in college and the team is incredibly fast paced, which we expect could be a pretty good pick, especially when, if I look at who went just before him, let's see, we have the last three picks were Traquan Smith, Terrace Marshall. Fine. Here's the here's the unique one at wide receiver seventy one with guys like Christian Kirk still on the board. Hunter Renfro went the pick before me, so that is a classic case of you really need to spin a web and keep spinning it over and over, and then get drunk to convince yourself that Hunter Renfro is going to be the guy that you are flexing at any point this season. Right. Like, what what are we doing with Hunter Renfro? I can. I- there's probably a hundred guys on the board right now that I would say have more upside to ever get flexed than Hunter Renfro. I don't even know. Is he the wide receiver four there? Five, six at this point. Um, I, I have no, does idea. he make the team? <laughs> I think right. Zay Jones is still there. Like who's he, <laughs> there's going to be a, a lot of guys chomping at the bit for 25 Derek Carr targets on the season. Oof. One of them. That, I don't know. That was funny. Okay. Cause Kirk went 1703 in mine, and that was who I wanted at 1704. So we're we're thinking of life on that one because yeah, it's Kirk's not sexy, right? Like because we've I like those guys. Well, yeah, it's because people get burned, right? And sometimes we're just a year early on these guys. Right. Um, that's actually a couple of breakout finder articles I got coming out where you know trying to predict breakout guys. Like we may just be like you do have to have some luck and Sometimes things don't work out so well. Um, I think a Miles Sanders one's coming out first, and there's a lot to like on the profile. And at the end of the day, you just have to go, look, of course he didn't break out. Like Carson Wentz was at quarterback, turning over the ball a lot. So uh, so with bringing it back to Kirk, like, yeah, especially 17th round, like, I think we're seeing, we've seen his floor. Like, he's still going to get fed. It's 
yes, Rondell Moore is exciting, but Kirk is still the established veteran there. I just, I, like I just want Kirk. It was him and Sterling Shepard, and I went with the guy I think is going to be in a better offense. I have them in the same tier. They're pretty close. Kirk, two slots ahead in the rankings, and just kind of leaned on the better offense. So we'll see what happens there. But I think both Kirk and Shepard are good picks there where you can see both of them having 800 receiving yards and being flexible each week. Absolutely. And I'm just going to take your Daniel Jones. I I took Shepard and I think you took Jones. Let's combine them here. Let's get a little stack. (laughs) (laughs) I did take Daniel Jones. Um, But with me, I, one quick point on the handcuffs. I love what you said when you're looking at, you know, there's those ambiguous backfields and targeting those players, but not, yes, not drafting Zeke and Pollock. The only time I find that feasible is in dynasty. And even then personally, me, I'm only doing it if it is those high end uh, handcuffs, such as a Tony Pollard. So otherwise I don't want to waste the bench spot ever in any league. So I, I very much agree with that. And I also when you're talking about these later round wide receivers, like you've got such a great point. Me, I went, I, I, I drafted with purpose. I'm going after these guys. I didn't get Devonte Parker, but I was looking at him. These kinds of guys, I have Rashad Bateman, Brian Edwards, Jalen Rager, Tyrell Williams, all guys that could be, that have a very good chance of being the one or two on their teams. And, and yeah, you might think the Lions offenses could be that great, but I've always kind of like Tyrell Williams and he's he's probably going to get a lot of opportunity this year so these are the kind of guys I'm looking at I'm not looking you know to take a shot as you like like a Hunter Renfro what the hell is that so (laughs) you know I can't disagree with anything really you guys said as I told Aaron I was pretty we're done in my division and I'm pretty happy with my my team overall um as I told Aaron uh off pod like I feel like I could have gotten my third QB, I could have waited on him and gotten uh, a, a better third running back. I think maybe that's the one um, place I might have miss, misstepped. But I think other than that, I'm fairly happy. So it was, it's been fun. It's an honor to be in it. And, uh, yeah, you guys make a lot of great points. I can't disagree with any of them. So we're going to wrap it up with that. Aaron, you know what? You did much better, you know, the last couple of topics. So we're going to help go ahead on this last one and give you three points, which brings your total up to four, which means Larkin gets a two. And is so 11 to four. Very good effort, Aaron. But the win uh, goes to Mr. Larky. He's the mad champion of the week. Thank you very much for joining us, sir. We appreciate thank you. you being here, man. Very much so. And don't forget, to check him out on Twitter at jlarkytweets, the R code site. Check out all that stuff, man. Dude's on fire. Dude is on fire. Aaron, you got anything you want to close this out, buddy? You got anything to say? Final thoughts? Um, Either one of you? It, it's like going to school here, but like the enjoyable kind too. Like when you have smart guests on the show, we get to learn, and you know, right. it's with Josh is in high demand. Every time I get on Twitter. He's on podcast. He's doing mock drafts now. Like, so the fact that Josh was able to fit us into his schedule there, like what an yes. honor, man. It was awesome. Very much so. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I mean, I had to, to skip out on a few meals and appearances for this. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was excited to come on. 
I feel like awesome. it's always fun to to talk football with Roto Underworld people because we all have sort of that baseline knowledge, mm-hmm. and I feel like it makes the conversation flow better when everyone is sort of in agreement on certain basic principles of fantasy. So this was Indeed. a good time. Indeed, enjoyed it, man. All right, we're gonna get the hell out of here once again. Hey, hey, Ron Stoop09 on Twitter for the salary captain. At Jay Larkey tweets for Mr. Josh Larkey, the luxurious Josh Larkey. And at RMK Madness for me. Thanks for joining. We'll talk to y'all next week. Good to go. Good to go.